following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn to John's gospel once again, John chapter 8. I found as I undertook to study the passage this week, we dealt last week with John 8, 12 through 20 with a momentous announcement, I am the light of the world, very familiar thing that Jesus was saying. And I had to say at the end of a few hours of study this week, forgive me, Lord, for saying, well, this next passage really isn't very important. All of God's Word is important. But what I meant, what my mind meant, was there's no momentous, familiar word like I am the light of the world in this next passage. But there are very important things being said. And this is a point of rather terse and difficult discussion now between Jesus and the Jerusalem leaders, the Jewish leaders. There aren't any smiles on the faces as Jesus talks with these people because they've gone quite a few rounds, you know, like boxers in the late stages of the match, and they're not very happy with each other. And the things that Jesus has to say are hard, and the things that the Jewish leaders are asking are hard and not very civil. So listen to this, because it is God's Word, John 8, 21 through verse 30. Jesus is speaking to these leaders. So He said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin, because where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So they said to Him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from Him. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed on him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. I spoke some months ago with a person who was admitting to me that he had made a major blunder in his life. It's not important exactly what that was. 
But he was telling me how he found his way into that blunder, and he said, frankly, I didn't pray before it happened. And there were some people who were telling me not to do it, not advising it, and I ignored them. And he made a key decision that has proved to be quite disastrous for him socially, financially, and emotionally, spiritually. He now, however, has brought it before God and is repenting of it, and recovery of that wrong turn in his life, I believe, is underway. He's like the prodigal son coming back to his father and saying, how foolish I was. And God is going to restore him. God receives prodigals today just as he did long ago. But I raise that man to say that life in a fallen world can be full of missed opportunities and bad choices. And sometimes our bad choices bring really hard circumstances that we have to face and we have to work through. And and just because we say, Lord, I was wrong, forgive me, doesn't mean the painful consequences of a poor choice immediately go away. Did you ever try to think about Adam and Eve after Eden? Did you ever try to think about how their whole remaining lives were consumed by the word regret? They must have thought, if only we had acted differently. I've made poor choices in my life. I've had to learn some things the hard way. I wonder if there's a single adult here who could say, I've never done that. (laughs) I don't think you deserve the term adult if you can't say, I've made some bad choices and I've had to live with the consequences. Our text today is a stern warning from Jesus and his speaking to his constant critics, telling them that not believing in him would be the worst of all possible choices they could make in their whole lives. And not only will there be something hurtful from that choice, it will be impossible to recover from it if they wait too long. He's challenging these hearers, even though their conflict is is pretty strong and pretty harsh at this point in time, to make a right decision about him before it's too late. Before their hearing, he's called himself the bread of life, the living water, the light of the world, the son of the highest, sent from God. He is constantly, I'm just impressed preaching through John at how many times Jesus keeps saying, I don't do anything without my Father. Passage after passage, I'm just doing what my Father has sent me to do. I represent my Father. If I say this, you can be sure the Father's saying this. So there's a sense of urgency that men and women must trust in him as God's gift to give eternal life. I want you to notice a little minuscule thing that would easily escape your eye probably in this passage, John 8, 21 and following. Notice in verse 21, Jesus first speaks of dying in your sin, singular, as if you died either in a collective way or whatever, but the word sin is singular. And then in verse 24, he says, you'll die in your sins, plural. They say, oh, big deal. What's the difference? Well, the text is pretty explicit about one word being singular and one being plural, and John Calvin had a comment on that. He said that the singular word was used first by the Lord to emphasize the sin, singular, of unbelief, as if to say, 
Not to believe is such a key and major root cause sin that it unleashes everything else. And if you don't believe in God's Son as the Christ, then all the other sins follow like an avalanche upon your head. We think it's pretty deliberate that he spoke that way. One critical sin will cut you off from the grace of God. That is the sin of not believing in the Son of God. Now, on this communion day, I have three points, and they'll be shorter than usual. And I'm going to do something a little different, maybe just to get your attention. Since this is a text in which the tone of the conversation, at least from the Jewish leaders, is is rather heavily sarcastic, and even the tone of Jesus is rather ironic in the way he speaks, I'm going to use that ironic tone, and I'm going to tell you three things to do, three things that you can do. Now, I'll tell you, they're ironic statements, okay? In other words, if you do these things, you will die. You'll understand when I tell you. First of all, in order to be sure that you make the biggest mistake possible in this life, do this. Persist in being 100% worldly-minded. In order to be sure you make the worst mistake you can ever make and you won't be able to recover from it, persist in being 100% worldly-minded because that's what these people were. Jesus told these temple leaders he was going somewhere and they couldn't go. Eventually, he'd be at a destination they would not be able to find him no matter how they looked for him. And you notice that the only response they had to that was mockery. And it appears that they thought perhaps that he was going to commit suicide. Now, to a Jew, suicide was the ultimate sin. They would have even perhaps called it the unforgivable sin. And by the way, there's nowhere that the Bible says suicide is an unforgivable sin. That's a topic for another time. But they said, oh, well, the only way we can think of that he would go someplace that we couldn't come would be if he killed himself and he was in hell. Because we'll never go there, in other words. Ironic, because that's exactly where they were headed. Jesus, when he died, and it would be these men who would help kill him, by the way, would be in heaven. And it's there that they would not be able to come. That's what Jesus was saying. But they sneered at him. Oh, what is he talking about? Perhaps he's going to be in hell. Perhaps he's going to kill himself. Do you see the way a non-spiritual mind, a mind that's anchored only in this worldly kind of thinking, loves to use a jest or mockery or sarcasm to address ultimate spiritual issues? I'm sure that many, many of you adults have heard somebody say in the workplace, maybe a relative or friend who's not a believer, this is a familiar line. When somebody says, well, I won't mind so much being in hell because all my best friends will be there. Ha, 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 ha big joke. If you can laugh about hell, they seem to think you've suddenly taken the the meaning out of it, and it, it really doesn't exist after all. And there are people that imagine if they can deflect profound spiritual matters with a brainless jest, they have dismissed the subject. Now, these people show, Jesus said, that they live in a totally different realm than he did. He said, you people are from below, I'm from above. He's, he's really 
being blunt here. You are from this world. I am not contained by this world. You are from below. Your thinking is entirely about material things. It's about the comforts of this life, material gain, relationships in this world. You are not able to think about eternal things, lasting things, ultimate things. This same author, John, wrote in 1 John 5, 19, that this present world lies under the power of the evil one. So ultimately, their worldview was a Satan-dominated worldview, and it it never could see. It's like they could only see one dimension instead of the other dimensions of the world. They could never think about things above because they did not have the Holy Spirit. And so, if you wish to make a colossal mistake about your soul, just go on insisting that ultimate truth is really not a very serious thing, and that you know all there needs to know about it based on your limited earthly views. Reject claims of spiritual truth as if they were a joke. Laugh at them. Your worldly friends will probably find you clever. They might laugh with you. I assure you, God is not laughing. Secondly, here I'm looking especially at verses 24 to 27 of John 8. This passage says you can make a catastrophic life mistake by doing this. So here's the ironic advice. Ignore everything God has ever revealed about Christ in history and His Word. You want to make a big mistake? Ignore the revelation of God in history and the Word of God, and you'll make the worst mistake ever. Jesus was confronting these critics here in verse 24, and He said, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. If I can paraphrase, He was saying, unless you decide about Me soon and know that I am from God, I fear for your permanent future because the whole skyscraper of unbelief that you are building around yourself brick by brick is going to come crashing down upon your heads. Now notice a curious phrase that's here. The odd phrase when he says, unless you believe that I am he. Maybe you think something was was left out of your text as you look at it there. You say, hmm, wait a minute. Shouldn't it say that I am the light of the world or that I am the Son of God? It just says that I am he. What does that mean? Commentators are pretty united. They're not always united about a lot of things, I can tell you. If you've got five commentators in the room, you've probably got seven opinions. But commentators are fairly united in thinking that when Jesus says, I am he, he's drawing upon the Old Testament language of God defining himself, explaining himself to Moses as far as he was willing to explain himself when Moses said, in effect, who are you, God? Who is going with me? And God said, Tell them that the I am who I am is with you. Now, that didn't really answer Moses' question, but it answered it as far as God was going to answer it. And we believe that that's what Jesus was claiming here. Unless you believe that I am not merely from this world, but that I am from above, I am one with my Father whose identity needs no more definition than the words, I am, you will die in your sins. He was claiming to be God's representative, just as he had been claiming that throughout this gospel. 
And so it becomes the dividing line between a future spent in heaven with Christ, enjoying full salvation by unmerited grace, or a future of ultimate disaster in which the crushing weight of your own sins falls upon you. What makes the difference? Your belief in what has been revealed in history and Scripture about Jesus as God's I am. God's representative, the fullness of God in a human body. All the many things that Scripture say about Him. You might ask yourself, where in the Bible, this could be a Bible trivia question, where in the Bible would you look to find the first and largest lie that is told? I think some of you would come up with it pretty quickly. It's actually in the first book of the Bible, in the third chapter, Genesis 3. What's the first and biggest lie that was told when Satan, who appeared in some kind of form of a creature called the serpent, not a snake, but some kind of creature that was lovely and attractive and enticing, that spoke to the woman and said, has God said that? Listen, here's the lie. You will not surely die. This is Jesus Christ across the centuries standing up against that first great lion saying, Oh, yes, you will. You will surely die unless you seek me and believe that God has sent me. And you see, the Jewish experts come right back at him saying, he's just told them who he is, and he's not really being that veiled about it. But they come right back, and I I don't know if I can imitate the tone of voice in which they ask the question of verse 25 and say, who are you anyway? Who are you? I don't know how it was inflected. But they were like, you're a man saying this to us. How can you say things like this? And Jesus says, I'll tell you who I am. I'm just what I've been telling you all along. Where have you been? Haven't you been listening? Much had already been said about the identity of Jesus, but they didn't want to hear any of it. They were deaf to it. And so if you're like them at all and you're sarcastic, skeptical, hard-nosed, unbelief persists in stifling every pang of conscience that you ever feel and fights against the plain truth of things about Christ that are revealed in Scripture and in history and in miracles and so on, Do not be surprised if eventually the very last opportunity comes for you when you can no longer believe in Him and you will die in your sins. The last opportunity will go. Not because God wants that to happen to you. God waits and waits and waits with the unbeliever and offers the unbeliever many opportunities. He delights to show mercy. He doesn't delight in the ultimate death of the wicked. But the time comes when that person is cut off. And if you could use a crude phrase, you could say that when a fool ignores everything God has revealed, then that person will stew for eternity in his own juice. Thirdly, one more point, one more word of, yes, sarcastic advice. I think you've caught up with the fact that I'm being sarcastic. If you want to make the worst catastrophic mistake of your life on earth, do this. Refuse to bow low before God's Son who is lifted up. 
If there's a memorable verse in this passage, there's, there's more than one, I guess, but perhaps verse 28 is the memorable core of this passage. When Jesus says to these leaders, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. The cross will have about it a way of resolving these things that they don't think are clear to them. There will be this this event that is both wonderful and terrible, that is not an accident, that is not a mere circumstance, that, that didn't just happen because things went wrong politically between Jesus and the Sanhedrin, but rather because it was an event appointed by God from the foundation of the world. It's already been mentioned by, in the same terminology in John 3, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man. He must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. It's an appointed event. It's the climactic event of all history. Not merely the execution of another criminal on a routine day, you know, when they, and you say, lift it up, what does that mean? Well, I think you understand. That means the cross. You weren't lifted up all that high, actually. You know, we think that crucifixion, probably the feet of a victim were only a few feet off the ground or maybe four or five feet at the most. But there was Jesus lifted up in a place where we would all say he didn't belong, but we did belong. And what men came and meant for evil against him, God turned out for good, in fact, the greatest good of all possible. Because the death of Christ was the essential work that atoned for the sins of every man, woman, and child of all history who would believe in his name. He died for his chosen ones, for his elect, for those who would believe. And God's wrath was quenched as it fell on him and crashed on him instead of us. He died in the believer's place. But in the last day, we're told, the people who do not embrace the death of Christ in a humble faith and call him Lord, they will stand condemned by the same cross by which we are saved. And that refusal to believe is called by the name here, dying in sins. You see, God doesn't have to bring in any new batch of sins. It's not as if at the, the, the last gasp of your breath when you die, God says, okay, I've got a whole bunch of new sins I'm going to dump on you. No, just the ones you bring with you that are not covered by the blood of Christ, that are not forgiven by God's redeeming grace, counted for you, are enough to crush you, and you will die in them. And you will die in an eternal way, not just a physical way. Now, people are mightily offended at this. Oh, boy, I suppose next he's going to mention the word hell. Well, interestingly, the word hell isn't in this text, but what do you think dying in sins means? It's just another name for hell. And Jesus certainly used the word in many other places. The Gospel of Matthew is full of references when Jesus referred to hell. Unbelief, he's saying, is the sure way to unlock hell and enter it and stay there for eternity. For Jesus himself, trust in him that he is who the Father revealed him to be is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And it's the only way to come to the Father by him. 
Millions are only going to realize this when it's too late. And then they'll think of the cross. But they will not think of the cross redemptively. They'll think of it with woe and wailing because that same cross will only condemn them. Our text closes with a good word. This is heavy stuff, isn't it? But there's a good word in verse 30, and you might almost miss it because it doesn't look very important. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Isn't that great? Even as this hard-nosed condemnation was being sarcastically thrown at Jesus by these who, who apparently would not believe, although we even know that some of them, some temple leaders came to faith later, a little later on. So maybe some of these men did. But even as he spoke to them, many believed. God is always having his result, isn't he? The world might scoff. It might seem like 90% don't care about the things of God or are hardened against them or love to mock them. But every time God's truth is being spoken, people are believing. God has his fruit, and he knows where it is, and he will claim it. And we learn from this passage today, we should learn that there are two ways and only two ways to die according to the Bible. You've heard here about the worst way, the bad way, the terrible prospect of dying in your sins. There's no recovery from it. But I want to remind you the words that I, you often hear me say when one of our believing folks passes away, and they're from Revelation 14, verse 13. Blessed, mightily blessed are the dead you complete the phrase, who do what? Die in the Lord. That's the other way to die. To die on the right side of Calvary, where the cross has covered your sin, where Jesus is, is your Lord, and you exclaim to him, my Lord and my God, as doubting Thomas did when he put his hands in the wounds. You see, the cross is, is like a fork in the road, and everybody goes one way or the other. Either you're condemned by it or you're saved by it. It's that simple. And I have to tell you, Jesus has gone to a place today at the right hand of God where you will not come unless you come by faith that trusts Him and believes in what He did and all that He was. You won't come with your worldly mind and your worldly decisions and your worldly sarcasm and your worldly unbelief. But even if you know that that's your destiny right now, it can change. You're still breathing. I think you are. I look at you. You all look like you're breathing. And if you are, you can still change that hard-nosed agnostic skepticism that strikes out against God. Do you want to know what God is like? Look to the cross. Do you want to know if God loves you? Look to the cross. And do you ask the question, Pastor, can I be sure that I will die in the Lord? I say to you, put all your faith in the cross of Jesus and do it today. And you can know. You can know. Thanks be to God. Our Father, the gospel has hard-sounding things in it, and this passage today has 
Jesus speaking in a hard way to hard, hard-headed people. May you soften skeptical unbelief if it is found among any of us. If there are those who have scoffed at eternity the way these people did, may you silence that mocking and scoffing and soften them to bow low before the sun lifted up. As we come to your table, we come in humility and thanksgiving. We cannot be thankful enough that this is all by grace, not of us. And if any of us comes in faith, you've given that faith. So thank you, Father. Thank you for the one who is lifted up. Put us low where we can praise him. We ask in his name. Amen.